You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, also known as your joyologist. On this podcast, I love having conversations with people getting into the journey of their lives. I do this with the hopes that seeing into other people's lives gives you more compassion for your own life, your own journey, for you know, all the different ups and downs and twists and turns and seeing that most people's lives aren't a straight line. On today's episode, I have an incredible human, Stanley Andres. Uh, He wrote a book that was out two years ago, maybe, but it's called From Prison Cells to PhD. It's never too late to do good. He has an incredible story. I said story, but I mean, his, it's his in story, but it's his life. Talking about life growing up and how he ended up being incarcerated early in his life, um, how that happened, what happened while he was there, and what he has chose to do since getting out, which is incredible. Um, incredible what he is doing for the medicinal field. Medicinal field. <laughs> the medicinal field sounds to me like uh, like uh, drugs, uh, but no, for healing. So, and what he's doing for the medical world, and then also what he is doing to give back and create greater change. You've got to go check out his work you can go to from prison cells to phd.org and see about the work that he is doing to support others. We'll talk about that in the episode. Before I say let's get into it, please go leave a review for the podcast if you haven't yet. It really helps. It really helps to become more searchable, to become more found. Reviews really help. Not just podcasts, but books, but anything, products, restaurants, right? Whatever you like, leave a review. And so a reminder, if you don't have my book yet, what are you waiting for? Go get the book. If you have it, please leave a review. Amazon especially is great for reviews. If you don't have the book yet or you want to look for where to buy it, go to ftheshouldsdothewants.com and there's links there and there's also some bonuses you can still claim once you order the book. All right, let's get into the episode. Okay, so I like starting off with all guests talking about life when you're growing up, but especially the high school years. Now, I don't know full background, but I know a little bit about you. So, but I like to ask people when they're in those high school years, like, did you have an idea of this is what I want to be when I grow up? Like, did you dream or were you, did your parents or teachers or anybody project anything onto you or were you just living your life and trying to get through the day? Yeah. So, you know, first, thank you for having me. Super excited to connect and have this conversation with you. High school is, you know, I I, I think even starting a little bit before high school, I was not necessarily encouraged to pursue academic intelligence type, you know, that, that part of who I was at um, in my earlier years. So I'm from the Ferguson, Missouri area. And, uh, you know, growing up in that particular area, we know a lot about what has kind of transpired and are, you know, from the things that happened in Ferguson resulting after the death of Mike Brown, we know certain policing habits came to light. And the way uh, policy and um, practices there, excessive policing, over-policing, over-taxing and fining and and things of that nature. Um, So I kind of grew up in that not knowing any of that was taking place. I always saw police around, for instance, and, you know, I had multiple interactions with police from an early age. I was, you know, arrested for the first time at 14 and moved into the criminal legal system. Uh, but even before that first arrest, I had multiple interactions, bad interactions 
with the police, even, you know, as young as probably eight years old, just remember, you know, interactions of the police kind of more or less viewing us as criminals. And we were just, you know, kids. I mean, eight years old. Um, so. Like, so you have memories of like these interactions when you're a kid and it's just policemen. Like there wasn't even anything going wrong. Like there was no reason per se for like policemen to be there. They were just around, like, you're just a kid playing and there's like watching, like waiting for like some reason or not even some reason, something that they could like punish or. Right. And so from early on, like it was, you know, police were thought of as, you know, I, I, we should stay away from them. They're there to potentially harm us. And, and you know, like we, you trust we, you know, the police. I, I oh, the police. Like, exactly, yeah, like- <laughs> exactly. So I didn't know that that was, uh, you know, I didn't have that interaction. And, you know, I can remember running from the police and just, you know, not not knowing why, right. you know what I mean? You like, didn't do anything. Like you weren't hiding. Around, like, oh, no, the police. Like, like that's your initial reaction. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas me growing so up, that it might have been like, oh, of, good, I feel safe. Even now, oh, I moved next to a right, cop. Right. So I feel safe. That's from my background, right. my right. white skin. Oh, wow, yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, so not even knowing the psychology of what's that do- what's, what that is doing to me, right? So, you know, that's going on in the background, this over-policing, excessive policing. Also, what it made me feel like um, was that I lived in a neighborhood that needed that because I lived in an area where there must be, like, why are the police always around? There must be because there's a lot of criminals around. You know, that sounds like it makes sense. Like, they need to be around where all the criminals are. Um, So, you know, I was not of the understanding that there was this, oh, I didn't know what over-policing was. And you know, uh, profiling and things of that nature. I mean, I, you know, I, I knew racism existed and, you know, I was actually more so than even racism. My family and I are Haitian, so we're, we're immigrants. Um, so, you know, I, I got it from many black kids and parents and now being a black parent myself of a, a, a you know, a boy, a, a black boy, um, you know, having, he's very young at this moment, but knowing that it's going to come, that I need to have, you know, I'll need to have conversations of what the world sees him as. But on top of just being black, we were immigrants and we were immigrants from Haiti. At this particular time, Haitians were, I mean, Haitian, Haiti is one of the poorest countries in the world. And, you know, there was certain views being portrayed of Haitians at this particular time. So my parents were always like telling me, of that aspect. Like, not only are you black, like you're a Haitian and you're an immigrant, like the world is kind of sees you differently. And they're set up to not be like, you can do whatever you want. Like they're not going to be lenient on you, you know? So, you know, you can't, you got to be cognizant of that. So that was always being drilled and that's drilled into black kids in general, but there was this extra layer of being an immigrant and a Haitian immigrant at that. Um, So that's, that's all bubbling in the background. And then in school, you know, I, I started to, I was seen by teachers as early as like elementary and, and middle school as the troublemaker, as having poor conduct in and out. By the time I reached um, high school, I was in and out of detention and suspension. I was almost expelled from school on several occasions but uh, my saving grace was I was one of the school's athletic stars. I was a three-sport athlete and I was a track star. And the track coach was actually the disciplinary principal. So, you know, he would always make sure that, you know, no matter how much trouble I got into, that they wouldn't, he wouldn't let them expel me. So, you know, had I not had that saving grace, you know, I, I you know, may have not even finished high school. And the the thing, again, um, so I was I was getting in trouble in suspensions and detentions for things like, you know, sagging my pants, talking to girls in class, you know, being a few minutes late, not like, like not, not real I'm, I'm not selling drugs or, getting fights right. or anything like you're that. You're not bullying Just people. little stuff. Which are like, you're not. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So but, you know, 
So again, it was this psychological thing that I, I started, I was being told that I was a bad person. So, you know, subconsciously just growing up in my neighborhood with the over-policing and the views that I had towards police, there was this subconscious already being embedded in me that I was, I come from a place of criminals. So that's been, that was subconsciously being embedded. Now, very intentionally, I had teachers telling me that I was this bad person and further like pushing me into feeling as I was this criminal. And, you know, what, what I'm explaining, what I know now is that this is, you know, the school to prison pipeline. So even before I got arrested for that first time at 14 and moved into the juvenile system, I was already labeled as a criminal within school. I was already a bad person and I was already, you know, the troublemaker. Um, So it only fell in line to now officially have this criminal conviction be associated with me. Were there any people, you know, you just mentioned like some teachers that were also instilling you like you're a bad kid. Was there anyone who was like, even like your track coach? I mean, did he just like, oh, he just wants you to like help the team. But like, did anybody have any sort of, you know, giving you the like, hey. Not not towards my intellectual capabilities at that particular time. So I had some, you know, and in my book, uh, which, you know, I hope to talk a little bit about um, titled From Prison Cells to PhD, It's Never Too Late to Do Good. In the book, I talk about that particular aspect of how it was my athletic coaching, like I leaned on this one particular coach, but actually like all of my athletic experiences really um, helped me through some later, very difficult times in my life that I, you know, hope to get to in this conversation. But, you know, it wasn't that they were, so I had a few coaches at that time in high school that really were just not saying that you were intelligent, but that, you know, that I was certainly kind of trying to instill in me this resilience or ability to fight through challenges, but it was mostly geared towards sports. Like they're trading me to be this resilient sports player. Um, But of course that translated into resiliency in life. So, uh, well, that's great. I'm glad you had some, (laughs) some people there, at least instilling these, some other messages in you. Uh, so you mentioned you were in and out of juvie, but then did you also, you did end up graduating high school or no? Yeah. So, you know, I ended up uh, with all that stuff happening in the background um, that I just mentioned. I ended up starting, you know, I started selling drugs even before I was a teenager. So sometime in like middle school, I guess. And by the time I got into high school and certainly by like the later years of high school, I was very, very deep into selling large amounts of of drugs. Um, So, you know, I got and then there was, you know, I I was getting all these stamps of certification, you know, just like just like you move up the ranks in different job fields. You know, I was, uh, you know, moving up the ranks in this like criminal enterprise field. And getting different certifications along the way, being certified from my teachers that I was bad, being cert, you know, I had the official stamp from the law. I had an official criminal conviction on me. I had, you know, just years now of people telling me and subconsciously and consciously that I was this criminal. And then, you know, now I got into selling drugs and I was I was good at it. And, you know, so. I had a level of skill and talent. And so I ended up being very good at selling drugs and making a lot of money is like in the book, I actually, you know, phrase it as, uh, you know, I was 17, 18, 19 years old making lawyer doctor money. Like I was making more money than a lawyer or doctor would make. And when you like got into selling drugs, was it something just sort of like it was just happening. And so like, okay, why not? Did you stumble into it? Were you like, yeah, I want money to help support my family. Like, or just like, you know, oh, that's what everybody else is doing or what all the above. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I, you know, that's one of the things that I kind of touch in in the book. And, you know, so there's all those different pieces that are playing in that I'm mentioning the societal, the cultural, 
what is a black person, what is a black male from this all black neighborhood from St. Louis, North St. Louis, that has, you know, one of the highest crime rates in the country. Like, what is a black male supposed to do that comes out of these environments? Right. Um, So, you know, all that playing in the background. And then what most friends that I knew that ended up getting into it, it started off with kind of just wanting to, you know, smoke a little weed and then getting introduced in that way and then realizing the financial and economical gain aspect of it. And then just that attached to like the economic and financial situation is pretty dismal in the areas around where I grew up. And so this was this opportunity to find, you know, elevate the financial and economical status of like my friends and the people that I was, you know, hustling with. So it was, you know, we had, you know, friends whose parents couldn't put food on the table. Now we're moving into bigger houses and apartments and things of that nature and being able to be much more financially and economically stable. So it was this, you know, I saw this problem of poverty and challenges and economic mobility. And I try to use, I had this teenage mind frame trying to solve this adult problem. And, and, you know, you mix those together, like we got a whole bunch of adults with high degrees and all that type of stuff that have been working it. And we still can't figure out this problem of poverty and economic mobility and communities of color. But I was like, I got it. I figured it out. <laughs> and this is it. And like, I'm, I'm elevating my people. And, you know, so that was, once I had that, I was like, this is, this is an opportunity to really lift people up. So I, I saw it as a way to lift people up. And uh, is that what ended up being what put you in jail? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a formerly incarcerated person with uh, three felony convictions who was sentenced to 10 years in prison as a prior and persistent career criminal. Um, So, you know, I got that first felony conviction fairly early. And along the way, I ended up acquiring two additional uh, felony convictions, one of which was the highest class of felony, which was a class A uh, drug trafficking charge. I mean, and, and to some of your viewers who, you know, may not be as familiar with the classifications, like a class A charge is in the same classification as a murder or attempted murder or a robbery or a violent assault. Essentially, it's pretty shocking that they would even be in the same category, even with an ins- a lot, like a lot amount. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I, I I'm uh, it it goes. So I mean. I, I see both ways. Uh, a lot of folks, you know, and, and I talk about this in the book as well. We we want to lump drug charges all within one classification. And that's currently how the system is. It's, you know, drug charges are drug charges. But I mean, there there really is, you know, on the level of making hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, the folks that I was interacting with you know, all carried guns on them and all were involved in, you know, quite violent activity. So there's, it's a, you know, at that particular level, it's, it's to say like, you can't be making this type of money and not be involved in some type of dangerous, violent activity. So, um, you know, they elevated it to looking at it just as the same as a dangerous, violent crime. Um, so it has the same time associated with those types of uh, crimes. I'm so excited to tell you about this incredible thing that my favorite authentic green beauty line, Blissoma, is now offering. You may remember me talking about Blissoma before, like, I just can't even believe how much it changes my skin immediately. It's cutting edge chemistry meets traditional herbal knowledge for the best of both worlds. Okay, but what they are doing now is incredible. They are offering you a custom build your own skincare sample set for free. 
There's a limited number of sets, so go check them out. So what you do is you pick the four products that you want to try out to see if it will work on your skin. And on this page, they'll give you a code to then credit the cost of those samples. So you got to go to blissoma.com backslash skincare dash sample dash set dash offer. If that was too long for you, just go to blissoma.com and you know, you can search for samples. So this way you get to choose which products you want to try and then how they work for your skin completely for free. How can you not take advantage of this offer? Some of my favorite products are Aura, the phytobrightening serum, Free, the rejuvenating herbal gel cleanser and makeup remover, Restore, oh, the Restore Omega Miracle Facial Oil. Honestly, every single product that I've tried, I've absolutely loved. Uh, those just happen to be my top three. So go again, go check out blissoma.com and choose four samples for your skin and get them completely for free. So while you, and I know, yeah, this is definitely, I'm sure in your book, did you say that you ended up being incarcerated for 10 years or that was, no, that was a sentence. So yeah, uh, I, in my early twenties, I found myself sitting in a courtroom looking at 20 years to life in prison. And I was the prosecutor. I got the prosecutor, uh, was successful in, um, sentencing me as a career criminal. So what that, you know, I'm, is, is, which was just, you know, one of the mind blowing things about it is, you know, it seems like you should take decades to do something to be considered that you're a career at something, you know, how, how in my early twenties should I be like a career, anything? Uh, but you know, she, uh, in doing that in getting the class a and in getting three different convictions in, in three different times, uh, she was able to essentially hit me with the three strikes law of Missouri so, you know, the three strikes law was the three strikes and you're out, meaning after three separate felony convictions, we want to put you away for life because you clearly don't get the message that you need to stop doing these bad things. Like we we gave you one, like we gave you a punishment for that. We gave you two. We gave you a punishment for that, which, you know, I got a shock incarceration for for the second one. And then. So the third one, she was like, you know, this person is and the severity of it being, you know, class A and the implication that, you know, you can't be involved in this. You know, she the picture that she painted was don't get it confused. This is not some high school drug dealer selling nickels and dimes. This is, you know, this dangerous threat to society that is moving large amounts of drugs. And I had gotten caught in several different states. So, you know, there was actually federal level, uh, federal investigation got involved. And so she was pushing for life because she felt that I was a person who had no hope of changing the decisions I had been making at that time. It's again, like, I don't obviously know the details, but it is shocking that for drug charges, even if it's in different states and it happens multiple times on that level, that they could be pushing for life for a young 20-year-old and that there's no like, well, okay, maybe we could, there's like this reform program. Like, nope, then we're just going to lock them away forever. Like that is, ugh. All right, so how long did you end up being incarcerated then? And, and yeah, I'm guessing they don't have, like, how do they prepare you to get out? <laughs> right, right. Um, so, you know, I was looking at life and uh, the judge in her eyes granted me mercy and sentenced me to 10, which was my minimum. So the other like nuances, I went from looking at five to 15. But, you know, when they changed it to me being a career criminal, I was looking at 10 to life. So she pushed for the maximum. The judge gave me the mandatory minimum, which was 10. And so you know, the other side, additional context, which, you know, I, I definitely go a little bit deeper into this in the book, 
is the fact that I was a young black kid from North St. Louis, as I mentioned, from the Ferguson area. I got caught up in this place called St. Charles, which is a little bit outside of St. Louis, and it's a predominantly white area. In this particular area, there was a lot of white flight going on from North St. Louis. So people, a lot of white individuals are moving out of St. Louis into this area. And subsequently, you know, there were sprinkles of black people moving into this area. And, you know, as a whole, the area didn't quite like that. Like they were running from the black people. That's kind of the definition of white flight. Like white flight happens in many cities where, you know, um, you know, of course, there's you know, now like a move back into the city. But so this prosecutor, the one of the one of the problems with the system is the prosecutors, the lead position in the district attorney is an elected official. So they're really they have to follow their constituents. And, you know, what benefited her, you know, literally would benefit her to put on her resume that I've been tough on crime my entire career. I've sentenced 50 life sentences and I'm keeping St. Charles safe. So whether she thought that I really deserved life, she knew that if she can say that when young black kids from North St. Louis come across my desk, I'm putting them away for life because I'm keeping St. Charles safe and we don't want that in our area. Uh, So, you know, there's this political aspect to it that she and she is incentivized to push for life even though she really doesn't really believe that, that I'm this dangerous threat that has no hope for changing. But that's the story that she told. So, you know, again, to all these things that are like taking place around my life, like this is yet another thing. So now I'm being told by this woman who, you know, was this white woman um, who I didn't quite like, you know, hearing all these you, terrible you, things oh, being, you didn't like being said about <laughs> <Yeah. me. laughs> But despite not liking her, I did I did respect her and I did believe her. So and I, I knew that I indeed was a person that carried guns on me. I was indeed a person that did some very harmful things to people. I was indeed this person that had all these convictions, arrests, charges. So the things she was saying were true. And so, you know, I I went into prison very much feeling as if I was indeed this criminal, this bad person, this person that was irreparable. Um, So I went inside very much like defeated and broken and kind of just set out that this is life. I need to prepare to be this criminal for the rest of my life because that's who I am. You know, one of the things that I often share and I talk about it in the book, you know, in that sentencing moment where the judge came down with a 10 year sentence, I had some family in the in the courtroom and, you know, my mom was in there and I'm the youngest of five kids. We're this Haitian immigrant family who she's been telling me for a long time that leniency is not something that people that look like me generally get. Um, And so we need to stay close knit. She, you know, English was my second language I learned. We speak Haitian Creole. And so she really didn't even her family was everything. And so losing her youngest son, she just broke down and was bawling in the courtroom. And I asked the judge if I can go console my mother and give her one last hug before I went off to start my sentence. And the judge denied me the opportunity to go to go hug my mother. And I had been in and out of the system and courtrooms and all this stuff for some time. That was my third conviction. I had been incarcerated already before, but it wasn't until that moment that it really hit me that the system sees me differently and the system doesn't see me as a human being. They don't see me as a person. They don't see me as a human being that deserves respect and civility. So it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks that, I'm not considered to be human anymore. And, you know, incarceration in prison was this, you know, repetitive cycle of beating you down every day, every minute, telling you that you're less than and that you're not worthy, that you are not a person, that you don't have the same rights as a person. So that psychological beating is one of the more challenging things to overcome, uh, you know, prison sentence. And, you know, for me, 
I was fortunate enough to have this mentor step into my life that kind of saw a different trajectory for me, saw me using my talents and potential in a different way, um, and and really started investing in that potential and, and my talents. Um, and and this is why while you were incarcerated. Yeah. What were like the talents that he was seeing? So I had graduated. I had graduated high school, and I ended up getting a football scholarship uh, to go play football at Lindenwood University. And it was it was a professor that I met through a summer um, internship opportunity. And that that ended up essentially kind of going to bat for me and actually going to the courts and and testifying and asking the courts not to send me away. And, you know, saying that this the potential that this individual has. Uh, But of course, you know, they sent me away, uh, but he stayed with me and kind of was that voice. Got it. I was imagining it was somebody inside with you. No, somebody outside that still stayed dedicated to you after you got sent. Amazing. So you did have like someone believing in you or seeing something different. You let like, didn't take every, like everything away from you of like, okay, yeah, this is just who I am. And, 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 but you know, it was, it was kind of for some time I had, I had that little voice telling me that, but then I had so many other things telling me differently. So it was, it was really hard for me to see and believe that voice, you know, of him telling me that what was really kind of the deciding factor to really let that voice be the overpowering voice guiding me was because, you know, in prison, it's not only the situations like the guards and all this other stuff that I was mentioning, like on a daily basis, there's this dehumanization Um, I mean, from the incarcerated individuals, they've been also kind of programmed to dehumanize each other and themselves. And so I'm battling against all of that. You know, prison is not this environment that is conducive for positive change. That's one of the big things. Like you, you put people in prison and then you don't give them any real opportunities or access to really make transformative, positive change. But for me, what was the like epiphany moment it you know it came you know my father ended up uh getting really sick almost immediately when I went to prison and I had fallen off from really being in contact with my dad because I was making crazy amounts of money and you know wasn't really listening to the different conversations uh that we had which I'll talk a little bit about but we had fallen off before I went to prison and then I go to prison and then almost immediately uh, he gets really sick. Um, And over the course of about two years, uh, he went through probably 20 or 30 different hospitalizations, surgeries, amputations, and eventually ended up losing his battle with type two diabetes. And, you know, dealing with sickness and death is challenging for, you know, most people. And, on the outside, we have the ability to actually go through the stages of grief. Like, for instance, anger. You have the ability to get mad and go into your room and scream and be mad at the world. In prison, you can't. You don't have a room to go to that is yours. You can't just start screaming at just no one or someone because that could potentially bring harm your way. So, you know, anger is not really an option in prison. In terms of like grieving in the form of being sad and crying, that could be seen as weakness and also can bring harm away. So when you think of the different aspects of grief, you can't go through them in prison. And, and really, um, you know, I'm, I talk about this in the book is part of the reason that prison is such a volatile place is because everyone, you know, I lost my father, uh, but people lose their significant others to different, you know, them leaving them. They are disconnected from their children. They have other deaths in their family. So they're, they're grieving and they're, they don't have a way, an outlet, a channel to really go through the grief process. So they act out and they get in fights and they, 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 they behave in different ways. So I think part of the reason 
that prison is is the volatile place that it is, is that people have no process to heal. Right. Or to even process their emotions, period, probably, besides taking it out on other people. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you, you're, you're creating this pot of just, you know, more volatile. It's just bubbling to be more and more volatile and, and dangerous and and more trauma inducing. So, but for me, what I did instead of letting that, you know, letting bottling those emotions up result in causing trauma to myself or others, I began to dive in to learn more about diabetes. I felt as if, you know, my dad was relatively well when I went away in my eyes. He had diabetes before I left. And so I was just like, I was certain that I had caused this. Like I was certain that I was the catalyst of, uh, you know, I felt this guilt that I was the catalyst for his health going down the drain. And so, you know, one, I wanted to learn more is like, is that possible even like what, how did it go bad so quickly? And also I was like driven to like, want to be part of the family conversation. And like, I couldn't be there to grieve with them, but at least like I could help understand the situation. So it's, it started out as that, but what ended up happening was this mentor started sending me these articles on science and diabetes. And I'm, I'm learning about the intricacies of what diabetes is at the cellular level. And, you know, although, you know, my body was physically locked in a prison cell, my mind was roaming around in the human cell. And in that way, I was able to actually like free my mind. So, and these scientific articles, if you're familiar, if you or your audience uh, may be familiar, they're like <laughs> not easy to read. Yeah, I was like, as soon as that scientific article, I was like, yeah, my brain like shorts out immediate. Like I was never science classes. No, like <laughs> I'd be like, great, let me take that sentence down there and that one down there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So at first, you know, you it, it may be oh, some, you know, some people may have like ran from it for that reason. But for me. It, it 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 took like it would take weeks, even months to just read one. But that was great because that just chewed up a couple of weeks and months worth of time. And, you know, so I just like dived into learning about this. And it, it was this way to really free myself from being incarcerated. And I'm guessing in some way that was like you were grieving because you were connecting with this learning about even though he was no longer here, that like it probably felt a connection. Right, right. So it started off as that, but then this mentor was like, you need to continue your education. And I never tied the two that like, I'm learning this as a basis for what I will do later in my life. I was just wanting to learn this and it was a way to escape prison. But eventually this mentor, his his constant, telling me that, you know, in my ear that I, there's something greater for me, I really sunk in and I really wanted to continue my education. So I started putting together applications to continue my education from the inside and was, you know, took months and months to put these together. I mean, through lots of different complications, putting them together from like not having internet access to having to write them out by hand because they're not having computer access to sending them to friends to not being able to get mail because they only allow you to get five pieces of mail. So all the applications kept getting rejected in terms of like the mail not getting to me. And so it just took a long time to put it together. And then almost immediately as I had someone on the outside press the submit button because I couldn't do it, you know, they just like the next day, just rejection after rejection after rejection. I got rejected from every single place I applied to, except for St. Louis University, where this mentor was on the admissions committee. And, you know, I had to check the box that I was this, that I had this criminal conviction on all the applications. And, you know, I'm quite certain that that was the instance. And even one of the, you know, universities got back and told me that that was the reason that they couldn't give, you know, uh, a scholarship to a person with a criminal conviction. Um, so I couldn't get accepted. But this person got me into St. Louis University and I really was unsure how he did it. So 
you know, when I ended up getting in, I got into St. Louis University and completed my MBA and PhD uh, simultaneously at the top of my class in much shorter time than my peers and eventually moved on to Johns Hopkins, uh, where I eventually became a faculty member at Johns Hopkins, eventually moved on to Howard University, where I'm currently at as a, a tenure track assistant professor and endocrine scientist, and eventually continued to take the hustle to being you know, overseas. Uh, I'm a visiting professor at Imperial College London uh, as well. I have chills as you were naming all of, all of that. And so when you first were applying and you got into St. Louis University, was that, did you, were you starting while you were still incarcerated or was it for when you got out? It was, uh, when I got out. Got, so it was like um, so I, nearing I was, the time that you were going to be released, that you're applying. Right, right. Yeah. So you just got out and then you were doing like finishing before other people in your classes and stuff like you're making. Yeah. And I, I equate it to, you know, a lot of people hear my story and, and, you know, it's the book is titled from prison cells to PhD and a PhD is like intimidating in a way to folks. And like, you so you're clearly like very intelligent um, is what the perspective, the perception is. But I mean, that's not quite the case. Like, it's not intelligence that really has has gotten me here. It was this drive, this hunger, this thirst for being this different person and, you know, this thirst and hunger for change and, and you know, not wanting to let myself, let my family, let this mentor down. Um, and what I found is like, now that I've uh, eventually started a, a nonprofit organization the same title as the book from prison cells to PhD that helps hundreds of individuals per year. We get about 500 applications per year for people looking for help on trying to continue their education. And, you know, we successfully help about 95% of those individuals that run through our program, connect to higher education and get into school and college. And they maintain our, our average GPA is 3.75. So I'm not the, you know, what I found is you give people that one little ounce of hope and a little bit of support and belief in themselves. And they too don't want to let you down and don't want to let family down and have this drive to be this different person after spending, you know, after so many years of being told that they were worthless and hopeless and scum and second class citizens giving being given this second chance, they want to run with it. You know, I found that it, it wasn't me that is this anomaly or exception. An another story that I kind of give an example of often to kind of paint this picture uh, of it, it not being necessarily intellectual intelligence that got me here. You know, when I was 19 years old, I was in in Dallas, Texas, picking up one of my first hundred pound pickups. So I was picking up a hundred pounds of dope and I walk into this uh, hotel room and um, I'm meeting up with a friend of mine who's uh, this, you know, Mexican guy that I met uh, of all places in, in college. And, you know, where he, I open up the door and like we had already been doing business together. So he's like excited to see me. He hugs me, he daps me up and is like, Stan, like I'm, I'm so excited to see you. And, you know, and we're talking and chopping it up. I look into the corner of the room and there's this, there's two other individuals, uh, two older uh, Mexican individuals. One of them has a sawed off shotgun with his finger on the trigger and the barrel pointed directly at my head and is just completely emotionless and uh, not saying a single word. And next to him is this big red Tupperware bin with a hundred pounds of dope sitting in it. And, you know, no smiles at all. This gun is pointed at me, but his friend is very happy. And, you know, I pull out a lot of money and 
I give it to them. Then all of a sudden, you know, everyone is kind of smiling. The gun goes away. I, you know, get the drugs and make the exchange. I juxtapose that to years later, I'm working uh, to finish up my PhD and I'm about to do my dissertation. And I have some some uh, peers of mine that are like, your dissertation committee is like the toughest dissertation committee ever. Like those professors are so mean. They're going to eat you alive. Aren't you scared? Like it's going to be terrified. And I'm looking at them like, no, like, I think I think I got this. I think I'll be okay. Uh, you know, so when you juxtapose like some of these life experiences that were like very traumatic and life threatening and I mean still even present, you know, post traumatic stress for individuals. What we do in our organization is really help them reframe that some of these experiences are the exact things that you need to draw on that actually puts you, that actually gives you a different skill or shows that you have this different skill set that many people don't have. Like it's impossible to really learn that skill set. Trisha here bringing you another brief interruption. I am so on fire about this new, amazing container I have created that will go throughout the summer. It's a four-month group immersive program. I have taken the most powerful concepts from my book, F the Shoulds, Do the Ones, And that is going to be the backbone of this immersive experience. We're not just like, hey, read the book and let's talk about it. No. So even though the book is the backbone, it's just going to be like serving as a resource material for you on like, hey, okay, you're struggling with this, like go deeper on that. But what we are going to be doing in this four-month container is actively you naming and reframing your doubts, fears, worries, judgments, shoulds, all of the stuff that is holding you back from truly accepting yourself, from truly enjoying your life, being able to be present in your life and in the moments you're in and not be in these self-judgment thoughts, comparison, worries, fears, doubts, and on and on and on to help you to prioritize your well-being, to prioritize what you want to be putting your time and attention on, to really constantly be guiding you back to in real time, not with my thoughts and my ideas, but we'll be pulling on your own. Again, this is gonna be a very active course, but that I've also laid out with spaciousness so that you have the time to implement it to show up for yourself and be living your life in real time so that you're aware of these things as they are happening so that you are able to fully own your life, own your past, own your present, own your future. There's not gonna be bypassing. We're really going to be confronting your thoughts and beliefs and getting to the core of them so that we can transform them, not just in that moment because it takes daily work, but you will be doing them in real time with my guidance and support so that after, after the four months, you will be like, you know, have that muscle memory of how to continue to do it for yourself like I do every single day. So please go check it out, yourduologist.com backslash own, O-W-N. The course is called Own Your Life. Feel free to DM me at underscore Trisha Huffman with any questions or to set up a 15-minute call to talk about it. All right, let's get back to Stanley. So like not so that they're not looking back at everything that happened with this sort of like trying to forget about it or shame even or whatever. It's like sure have remorse or like you have learned and you're grown and you want to be on a different path now, but also like, hey, you did learn a lot in different ways that other people don't have. And like you have skills from that. Like you're not nothing. Like you, you might have been doing illegal things, but like and you're wrong. You're yep, you've served your time. You have remorse. And like also look at, you know, like what that gave you in some way. 
So what we've what we've termed it as we, we go through this process in the program where we ask people to just do just what I did, like go back into their criminality and think about a particular situation. Like, what would you do? Like, if you think about it, like, what was I thinking as I walked into that room? You know, I had a gun being pointed at my head, yet I was able to do math problems. You know what I mean? Like, imagine if you're at a calculus test and you have a gun at your head. Like, are you going to be able to do the calculus questions? You know, that's the scenario. Like, I was I was able to be in those types of experience. So we go through this process where we ask people to think back into their criminality and think about the things that you're doing. And then we write out and they're telling us and we fill up an entire whiteboard of all these skills and attributes that they possess when they were doing these different activities and we call it the criminal skills activity. And then at the end, when the whiteboard is all filled up, we scratch out criminal and we put transferable. These skills are transferable skills. These are the same skills that Harvard students are using to ace calculus tests that, you know, business executives are using to close million and billion dollar deals at the boardroom table. These are the same skills. You just need to repurpose them and not use them towards criminal activities and use them towards productive activities. But the one of the things that I learned is that like in my process, the prosecutor basically was telling me everything, all those things that you were doing, you need to throw them all away. Those were all criminal. But all those skills that I had to make all those hundreds of thousand dollars, I don't need to throw those skills away. Those are the same skills that I'm using to still get hundreds of thousands of dollars within my nonprofit that I have now. Um, so I've just transferred them for a better and greater good. I love that. And this is like, <laughs> so like not, but also what you, when you're talking about that whiteboard and like these skills, what I was also imagining is conversations I've had with friends who like have, you know, not made their own money in a long time or ever because they, you know, like housewives or, you know, like, or even like mother, stay at home mothers. And then they like want to go, oh, I don't have any skills. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, okay, just exactly. like you don't list, like you I was a wife or I took care of the house. Like, yeah, like, oh, <laughs> like I can manage this. Like, so it's like listing out the actual skills that were happening, but instead it's like having shame for like, I haven't done enough or I did it this way or whatever. Like, are you kidding me? Do you understand how much you've done and do? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, you, you think about, <laughs> you know, the, the being able to perform the things that's, mothers and parents do uh with in the background of tiny little ones like keeping them alive from sticking forks and electric sockets and like doing all like the ability just to cook dinner around <laughs> all of that can remain is, calm mostly calm in chaos or like you know high can work in high stress yeah, can work yeah. in high stress situations or like yeah, like you just like exactly. say it in a different way yeah. like what is the thing and then like okay what is what's exactly. the skill that's happening behind the scene yeah that's that's exactly what we do with them. And a lot of times it's the same thing. They'll come like I, I was a, I used to rob people at gunpoint. What are you talking about? I have skills. I'm a I'm a criminal. Like I don't have skills. And then we go through the aspect of how they did it. And then they find out there was just a ton of underlying skills and uh, attributes that they were using. So, yeah, I mean, it's uncovering that because for so long we've been told that those are useless and that we need to get rid of them. That's so smart. Okay. I'm going to wrap this up, but you sort of like so quickly were like, okay. And then I went to this school and then I did this and now I'm teaching here, whatever. But what is like, um, talk about what is like the thing you're doing with your PhD and master's besides, and then, and then again, um, the name of your organization is the same as the book. Is that right? Yes. Yep. So so I am an endocrine scientist, which, you know, endocrinology, uh, you know, I, I mentioned to folks, you know, as an endocrinologist, you know, a lot of people are like, what, is, what does that even mean? Uh, it's, it's the study of hormones, essentially, but more specifically, it's, the, you know, I study diabetes. So I essentially started doing my studying in this prison cell. By the time I got to my PhD, the other reason that I kind of flew through, I had been studying it, self-studying it and learning about um, diabetes well before my peers. So I was, again, ahead of the game in that aspect, too. So 
I'm sitting in the classroom and I was like, I already learned. I taught myself these things already. Um, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm ahead of the game. But, you know, so what, what I do, I, I study diabetes and even even more specifically, I study a condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome. PCOS is the leading cause of female infertility. But, the you know, women with PCOS also end up developing diabetes. And my work uh, just recently discovered this uh, new pathway of disease that is taking place in, in women with PCOS that is very different than how regular or, you know, type 2 diabetes progress in people without di- or PCOS. So at the moment, we're treating women with PCOS with diabetes drugs as if they're the same type of diabetic that becomes diabetic from poor eating and inactivity. Uh, but it's a completely different disease process that we need to be treating differently. Um, so my, my research is looking at those mechanisms and potential, you know, therapeutic interventions, new novel therapies that we could pretty, you know, try to address those issues. Amazing. Okay. I'm going to ask some questions. I ask everybody to wrap this up and, uh, that's it. So the first is, what is a go-to to raise your joy levels? What is something that you do? And if you don't know, like, what does bring you joy? So what could you do if you're, like, feeling off and you want a little boost of joy? Um, so me personally or to your viewers? You. What do you do? Like, but I'm like, some people are, like, stuck. Like, what do I do to raise my joy level? So it's just basically like, oh, what brings me joy? Like, it might be putting on music or going for a walk. Or- so... Uh, self-care is a huge part of like my personal like goals. Uh, we've also in- incorporated self-care into our program. We've learned that people who've gone through prison have a lot of trauma to unpack. And if they're, if they're not intentional about their self-care, like you could give them all the resources and access and they may not be successful in school or jobs if they're not addressing and taking care of themselves. So, you know, we have a strong aspect of self-care within our program and organization, both for our 30 plus employees, which about 85% are formerly incarcerated people. So we know that they're dealing with these unpackaging of trauma. Um, So we incorporate self-care. Me personally, like self-care is fitness. So, you know, I was in the sports, I mentioned pretty much all my life. My dad passed from type two diabetes, mostly from poor eating uh, habits. So I know that there's a genetic component to that. So like exercise and fitness is a big thing for me. And that brings me joy too. Like I'm in like different leagues and things of that nature. But really, I think what I would really like to highlight uh, aside from like that fitness aspect is mentoring. So I'm at Howard University which is the mecca of historically black colleges and universities or HBCUs. It is the number one producer of black scientists and physicians in the entire country. Um, I was at Hopkins and I had the opportunity to like, I was a faculty at Hopkins and I could have stayed at Hopkins. It's the number one research institution in the, in the entire country. Uh, So, you know, if I wanted to stay in that track and I was on the path to be in that way, but it didn't bring me joy. You know, it, it wasn't a place that really filled me up and for many different reasons. And, and Howard is that place because of the mentoring aspect and because of the opportunity where I get to be part of the lives and journey of these, you know, aspiring black scientists and physicians. Um, so, you know, that brings me joy. My nonprofit is the same thing. Like we're a mentoring, we're a re-entry organization. We, we see ourselves, we framed ourselves as being a re-entry organization where we provide support for people coming out of prison. But really what we do is provide mentoring. And so, you know, both in my work as a professor at Howard University, I'm mentoring this underserved population of individuals, Black scientists and physicians, you know, Black scientists, Black physicians or faculty usually make up about 3% of the faculty at a place like Johns Hopkins. Uh, So, you know, places like Johns Hopkins are very white and very Asian, not very many black individuals. So it's rewarding to be a part of the institution that is one of the primary pipelines for that. So that brings me a lot of joy. It brings me a lot of joy to be part of 
Prison to Professionals, the organization that is helping create a pipeline, you know, reversing the school to prison pipeline. And we've now successfully created and got gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars of funding to create a prison to college pipeline. So we're mentoring individuals to, you know, really jump from prison into the college atmosphere. And that that brings me a great, great deal of joy to be be a part of that process. That's so awesome. And your organization for both uh, professional and now coming college, is it, do you work with people that have gotten out of anywhere? Like, is it location-based or no? You know, like, can so people just find you online? Or, yeah, how does it we, yeah, yeah, great. That's a great question. We like, there's people listening, I'm sure, people. that have people that are, you know. I would say to uh, reach out to us and, um, you know, you can find uh, the organization. Um, so the organization name is from Prison Cells, the PhD. The program that we run is called the Prison to Professionals Scholars Program or P2P Scholars Program. So you can find us at at Prison to Pro on any of the socials. You can find me at at prof underscore Andres, P-R-O-F underscore my last name, Andres. Um, and you can reach out to us there or you can go to our website and uh, submit one of the forms to reach out to us. Um, but we have a footprint in 34 states. We're a national organization. We were virtual. We were helping connect virtually before COVID. And, you know, so we were prepared to kind of move into that virtual world that we're in and be able to support people that are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. Amazing. And the people working in the organization, too, are they all formerly incarcerated people? Like, because I'm also this sounds like such an amazing thing that like, yeah, like, are there people that like that could want to support or help in some way or even possibly work for you at some way if they have not been incarcerated or like, because I'm like super inspired right now. Like, well, what can I do to help people? Yeah. <laughs> like, so we want to, uh, we have about 35 paid team members and about 85% are formerly incarcerated. So not, not, not all of our team is uh, formerly incarcerated, uh, but we, we have about, 200 to 300 volunteers to do the work that we do. And about 50% of those are formally, you know, or uh, have, are directly impacted and 50% are not. And what we've really done and why we're able to do it virtually even is we've helped create a support network. So every person that goes through the program has three individuals that are uh, connected with them, aside from having a lot of programming and workshops and different opportunities for uh, skill building and both personal and professional skill building, we create like a per- we create a personal team for individuals. And you know you can learn more about that process uh, on the website. But in that regard, like we we need a large body of volunteers to to do that particular uh, model of work. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'll definitely put all the links in the show notes. Um, because yeah, I really think it's amazing what you're up to. The last question is the name of the podcast is Claim It. What are you claiming for yourself right now? So I am claiming my status of being a formerly incarcerated, one of the only formerly incarcerated black medical school professors in the entire nation. I'm claiming that and I'm hoping to help create a platform um, that will create more opportunities for more individuals like myself to be, you know, in the medical, in the medical field or pursuing what they feel is their dream. So I am claiming my story uh, of being formerly incarcerated and I want others to uh, not see that as this thing that they need to hide but understand that there's value and power in your story. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for everything you're doing and for coming on to talk with me today. Yes, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Wow. Again, please go check out from prison cells to phd.org. You know, perhaps you know somebody that could use the work that he's doing. Perhaps you want to volunteer. I am very inspired by Stanley and what he's up to. 
You can also get his book through there for all things me, trishahuffman.com, yourjoyologist.com. Please go buy the book. Please read the book. Please review the book. You can also even order it now from my shop and I can sign it to you or to anybody else that you want to send it to or I cannot sign it. So go to shop.yourjoyologist.com if you want to get a signed copy or any of my products. And please go check out this new, incredibly immersive transformational container that I am going to be holding this summer. Go to yourjoyologist.com backslash own, O-W-N. I'm so excited about it. And, you know, I feel like people are going to be like, summer, that's not the best time to do like some sort of program. But how is it not? I feel like in the summer is when we have more like negative, I don't like to use negative, more challenging thoughts, more disruptive thoughts, more thoughts like, oh, no, I'm not this enough or not that enough or, oh, look at that person going on their fancy vacation. I feel that we go into judgment, comparison, doubt, fear, fear, like feeling left out, um, all of that more so. So I think the summer is the best time to do it, but the way I've set it up, it's four months, eight modules, so 16 weeks, eight modules, two weeks per module, so you will have plenty of time and support throughout the time to do the work yourself and to be guided and called into actually doing the work and not just like, here's some content for you to get around to. No, you will be fully supported and then entering like the back to school season of life with this new refreshed outlook and energy. So please join me, yourjoyologist.com backslash own, O-W-N. I also have a few one-on-one immersive spots open where I'm going to be offering the same type of work packed into a couple full days, which you can do virtual or in person, and my other offerings that are one-on-one fully immersive. So if you're interested in anything at all, send an email to yourjoyologist at yourjoyologist.com and DM me also. Happy to talk to you in the DMs and set up a short 15-minute free call at underscore Trisha Huffman. All right, last thought. What are you claiming in this moment right now?